Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. And by the Colchester Curry House, helping people make authentic Indian cuisine from the comfort of their home. Find authentic Indian spice blends and recipes at colchestercurryhouse.com. You're listening to episode 139 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're answering weird questions. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Since this is a fifth Friday in January, we don't want to leave you without an episode this week, so we're bringing you another episode of Weird Questions with Jimmy and Cy Kellett of Catholic Answers Live. Jimmy, what weird questions will you be answering this time? Well, we're going to be talking about quite a number of them. Does baby Yoda need to fast or would he need to fast given that he's 50 years old and if he was Catholic? Also, do artificial intelligences like Skynet, would a self-aware one have a soul? Is the prime directive ethically defensible? Should we destroy vampires and a bunch more? Excellent. Those sound great. So let's now hear your answers. This hour, we got Jimmy Aiken with us. As promised, welcome back again, Jimmy. Howdy. Glad to be here. Nice to get to work with you so much this week. Yeah. And uh, it's weird questions. We've got all weird questions for you. Oh, boy. And I'm realizing now how often the word weird Mm -hmm. gets associated with Jimmy Aiken. Yeah. Not as a modifier for weird, Jimmy isn't it? That is weird. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, weird and mysterious. All these are the words that get associated with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, of course, is your podcast. One of them. Oh, I was going to do a thing where I pretended like I couldn't find something. Oh. And then you were going to say, well, what are you looking for? And I was going to say a universe. Oh, right. Oh, and I forgot to do my whole joke. To, I did, I today's I, episode of Mysterious World is the case of the missing universe. Yeah. It would have been a great little Which bit. Which has a nice Sherlock Holmes homage at the top. Okay. All right. You are a Sherlock Holmes uh, aficionado. Yes, I am. I've read the stories many times. Um, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle. Mm-hmm. He wrote a lot of other stuff too, though, right? Yes, he did. He was an interesting guy. In fact, he didn't like writing Sherlock Holmes all that much. He thought it detracted from other things that he wanted people to take an interest in that he'd written. Oh, uh, isn't that funny? Sometimes he was also a psychic researcher. Uh, and did he uh, discover any psychic phenomena? He, he thought feel? he did. He did? Mm-hmm. Oh. Um, all right. Well, I got a bunch of weird questions from you. Okay. For you. Uh, these weird questions come from people via whatever. The internets. Yeah. Oh, they all come from the, yeah, through, via the internets. So uh, it's going to get weird in here. So if uh, we're, we won't be taking calls this hour, so you can just relax and enjoy uh, listening to a, a Friday afternoon of weird questions. Uh, Jimmy, by the way, I shouldn't, in case you don't know, Jimmy Aiken, I mean, I'm sure there's not that many who don't know, but if you don't know, Jimmy is senior apologist here at Catholic Answers, uh, the author of many things, including his most recent book, The Bible is a Catholic Book, which is uh, an extraordinarily uh, popular book 
book and for good reason if you've always wondered it just had you know the the those questions like what is the bible about and who are the people who wrote it and where does it come from all that uh, is covered in there in a very very readable way as a matter of fact readable is the most common word i hear about the book so i will recommend it to you the bible is a catholic book but he's got a whole bunch of other books uh, and as i said he's the proprietor of jimmy aiken's mysterious world that comes out as a podcast that comes out each friday uh here's a weird question for you jimmy okay uh from nasser mm-hmm. is it possible that children are so incredibly happy because of reincarnation their spirit remembers the fairly recent experience of being old and now they're internally happy to be young again Okay, so uh, first of all, I want to mention who Nasser is because I know Nasser. Oh, you do? Uh, Yeah, he's a very famous square dance caller. And I'm proud to say he was one of my very first square dance caller coaches. So he helped teach me the craft of that. And he's taken an interest in my career since then, which is uh, something I'm really pleased by. Um, In terms of now, also, you should know Nasser is a really humorous guy. And okay. so part of why he asked this question may have been to be humorous, but it's also something, you know, you could say, well, it's interesting to think about. Yeah. Um, babies do have a reputation sometimes for being really happy. And yeah. so, you know, well, could they is it possible that they could be happy because they remember being old in a past life and now they have this wonderful new body? The answer now, even though he, this may be intended as a humorous question, at least in part, I try to treat all questions Seriously. So here's the answer. Depends on what you mean by possible. We have to distinguish between several different kinds of possibility. Okay. The first kind of possibility is logical possibility. Something is logically possible if the terms involved do not entail a logical contradiction like square circle or four sided triangle. Right. So is it logically possible that God could have the soul of one person at when their body dies go into a new physical form with new matter and so forth is that could god make that happen well it doesn't um it doesn't the terms involved don't contradict each other oh so it would be logically possible the power of divine omnipotence could arrange for this to happen okay but then there's what you might call evidential possibility. What does the evidence suggest regarding this? And here you're going to get different claims from different groups of people because there are people who will say, well, little children sometimes remember things from past lives. And this is, in fact, something that's that by reincarnation believers is often used by them as evidence for their position. Um, Personally, and I will be doing episodes on this on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World in the future. But personally, I don't find this evidence persuasive. It tends to crop up in cultures where there's a predominant belief in reincarnation, like in India. Okay. Uh, or Nepal or places like that. In fact, this is one of the ways that they f- determine who the new Dalai Lama is. Um, whenever the Dalai Lama dies, they uh, do a search for newly born children. And then they'll like take some of the possessions of the previous Dalai Lama to these children. If they like reach out for him, oh, yeah. they say, oh, he recognizes it. And then the Panchen Lama, who's another figure in Tibetan Buddhism, will confirm, OK, he's he's the new Dalai Lama. OK, um, but. <clears throat> The, 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 these claims about childhood memories of past lives tend to crop up most often 
in um, in societies where there's a predominant belief in reincarnation. Whereas if this was a real phenomenon, you would expect it to crop up in all societies more than it appears to. Now, it does crop up sometimes in Western societies or societies where there isn't a predominant belief in reincarnation, but not very often. And the parents tend to be indulgent of it. So there's a question of how much is this because the parents are Right. encouraging the child to say this, even unintentionally. You know, children have lo- lots of fantasies. Right. And so if a, if a child is, you know, fantasizing and sa- and they also have a hard time distinguishing between reality and fantasy sometimes. But if a, a child is fantasizing and comes to his parents one day and says, I'm a fighter pilot. Yeah. And his parents are predisposed to believe in reincarnation. They might look at that and say, this is a reincarnation memory rather than just childhood fantasy. Yeah. Um, it's also really hard to get confirmed evidence. You know, if you say like, I was this person, okay, let's look them up in the birth records. It's really hard to get that kind of confirmation that there even was such a person. Right. So, um, uh, so I don't see good evidential grounds there. Also, um, you could challenge this on an evidential line in a couple of other ways. Uh, Nasser mentions babies being happy. Well, babies are happy some of the time. Yeah. But you've right. been a parent, Cy. Yeah. Are babies happy all of the time? No. One of ours was what they call colicky. Yeah. That was miserable. Right. Yeah. And so that's uh, that's a, 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 a question for this viewpoint of, you know, well, how happy really are babies? Yeah. And also, um, babies have very un- oh also one thing i will say though you could propose a counter explanation maybe the reason they get colicky and unhappy is cuz now they're stuck in this little baby body you know it's not i mean think <laughs> oh, about I think see. about that i mean I, they they're uncoordinated they can't control their bowels they yeah. can't eat when they want they can't do anything for themselves i'm stuck here when i just a few minutes ago i was a fighter pilot <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah. and and so maybe it's be maybe the he, he, you know uh you could say well um we would actually expect them to be very unhappy yeah. uh, given their current physical limitations so right. if they are predominantly happy, maybe they shouldn't be yeah. if they were really having past life memories. But then there's the issue of memory itself. And um, memories, uh, how memories are encoded in the brain is something we're still figuring out. But they, it seems to be, you know, they're encoded in the synapses of the brain and in particular in a special way with the hippocampus, which is a part of the brain. But babies have very underdeveloped brains. And it's not clear how these memories would be in the child's brain somehow. So there's an evidential problem there. Now, having said all that, I I think, although this is logically possible that God could do this if he wanted, I don't think we have good evidence for it from the reason perspective. Then there's the faith perspective. Would this be possible from the point of view of Christian faith? And the answer there is a clear no, because um, the... 
uh, vision for the afterlife that's presented to us in both the Old and the New Testament is not one that involves reincarnation. It's one that involves resurrection, which you could kind of think of as a sort of one-time reincarnation. You come back in physical form once. Incarnated again. Yeah. 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 But that's not what's meant by advocates of reincarnation. Right, right. And when it comes to that, you know, there were people in the ancient Greco-Roman world not among the Jews, but among broader Greco-Romans who uh, did believe in reincarnation. And that viewpoint is specifically rejected in the New Testament. Um, In the book of Hebrews, this is in chapter five, verse 27, it says it is appointed for man once to die and then comes the judgment. And so that's the vision of the afterlife that's supported by the Christian faith. We die once and so you better make this life count. All right. Well, that totally changes my I for years have thought I might have been uh, crazy. Larry, the, the stereo king of southern New Jersey in a past life, but I, apparently not. OK, this is Don and from Don. And it came to us via email. I've heard Jimmy talk about what reunification with Orthodox communities might mean as far as how it might cause changes in our Old Testament and how if maybe that's a long shot. But yeah. 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 OK. Right. So there's a lot of um, conditionals in there uh, and how those changes might be put in place in that vein. Would you kindly indulge me in the following? OK, so here we go. Let us stipulate one that Paul's lost letter to the Corinthians is discovered Two, one of his an, an additional copy is found with a complete textual agreement. Three, a third fragment is located and dated to the mid second century. OK, so he's saying this is very authentic. Right. I think he's trying to establish that uh, Four, scholarly consensus develops that this letter is a work of the Apostle Paul. In essence, there is no doubt that the letter is the work of the Paul. So that's the key. Key point. The rest okay. uh, thus far, it's just evidence no. that would help us get there. OK. And number five, the letter contains no dogmatic contradictions. And number six, the letter offers some additional support for what the Catholic Church terms purgatory and that this support can easily be harmonized with the Eastern concept of foretaste. Bottom line, is it from it is from Paul and it offers additional on point information. Given these stipulations, would you kindly opine on the following? Would the church likely call a council to consider adding the letter to the Bible? If so, do you think it would be added to the canon? To your mind, what would the various Orthodox communities do with the book? And similarly, what are your thoughts on what this development might mean to the Protestant world? We find a letter of St. Paul that basically reaffirms purgatory. Mm-hmm. What so, happens? So I think that um, that to take the questions one at a time, the Catholic Church would not be in any kind of hurry to call a council to discuss this issue. Now, the first thing is I think this scenario is very unlikely because I don't think we're going to get another letter of Paul. And if we did, we wouldn't be able to prove to the point that scholars were convinced yeah. universally that right. it was by Paul. But if that did happen, the church wouldn't automatically call a council to discuss it. Typically, uh, when the church has uh, dealt with the matter of the canon of scripture in councils, it's because there's been some kind of controversy. And so, and and especially if it's a newly discovered book, the church is going to really take its time before making pronouncements, even if the book is orthodox and well-supported to be authentic. Um, Should a controversy arise that forced the church to deal with this, it, it, it would be difficult given history to see how it would get included. 
for a couple of reasons. The first reason is that the reason that um, a book is included in the Bible is because the Holy Spirit guided the Christian community and prior to that, the Jewish community, um, to accept it as divinely inspired. But not everything that somebody writes, even if they're an author of scripture, not everything they write is necessarily divinely inspired. And even if it is, that doesn't mean it's meant to be passed on to the church as part of the canon. For example, you know, St. Paul writes a grocery list. That's not going to be divinely inspired. So that wouldn't go in the canon just because he wrote it. Um, Similarly, um, things that are inspired or appear to be inspired have not made it into the canon. Like um, uh, Jeremiah wrote a second book of Lamentations about the death of a particular king in Israel, but that's not in the canon. And so uh, for something to be in the canon, it needs to both be divinely inspired and be meant for inclusion into the canon. And how you would show this is meant to be included in the canon, even if it's number one, you need to show it's inspired. And how you do that is really hard because there's nothing that prevents Paul, even when he's not being inspired from writing theological treatises on his own time. Yeah. And exploring purgatory and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, But even if you could show it's divinely inspired, the. Does it belong in the canon? Well, here, the view that we've had for the last 2000 years is that um, the deposit of public revelation, that's the revelation that's binding on everybody, ended with the apostolic age. And so uh, so we don't have new public revelation that's going to be binding on people today. That's why we can't just someone doesn't write a book today and have it added to the Bible. Yeah. And if the argument would be, if it was God's will for this to be inspired and included into the canon, he would have guided the church to recognize this from the beginning. Yes. And and if he didn't guide the church for the last 2000 years to recognize this, then either the book's not inspired or it doesn't belong in the canon. Okay, so I think that's how Catholics would look at it. Now, uh, Don also asked of what about Orthodox and Protestants? Orthodox uh, place a very high value on tradition, and I think they would be even more reluctant to explore the idea that this belongs in the canon, even if Orthodox scholars said it's by Paul, because there's no tradition history of it being received as canonical in the Orthodox Church. Yeah. In terms of Protestants, I think you, here you would have a, a mixed reaction. I think it would be quite divisive in the Protestant community. If Protestant scholars agreed this is by Paul, it would be kind of an earthquake because traditionally most Protestants have not bought the idea of purgatory. But Protestants also don't have um, the same, at least presently, they don't have the same history of looking at how things belong in the canon that Catholics and Orthodox do. And so I think you would have some Protestants who would say, oh, well, if this is by Paul, we need to take it really seriously and we should include it in the canon, even if it even if it means buying purgatory. Um, Others would say, absolutely not. We're determined that purgatory is not correct and this must be a deception of the devil. Yeah. And then you'd have other people who would who might take a middling position and say, well, maybe it's by Paul, but he's just wrong on that purgatory thing. And this is not inspired. Yeah. 
Okay. Uh, thank you very much for the question, uh, Don, uh, for the enormous question. I appreciate it. Uh, Jimmy Aiken, our guest this hour. That's really good because it's weird questions with Jimmy Aiken and more weird questions. We go now to Conrad, also uh, via email. Would a self-aware artificial intelligence, for example, Terminator Skynet, have a rational soul? If so, would God create the soul the moment that the AI became self-aware? And would that mean once the AI is, quote, on, turning it off would equate to killing it? So um, I would say that uh, let's let's take these questions in reverse order. Okay. So the. <clears throat> Suppose you had an AI with a with a soul. Yeah. Um, I don't think turning it off would necessarily mean killing it, because what turning off a machine does is it stops its present functioning. So it would cease to have this r rational artificial intelligence going. But that's not the same as destroying the physical form oh, yeah, of that's the machine. Right, right. Humans lose their rationality when we're in dreamless sleep. Yeah. I mean, we it's still latent in us, but it's no longer manifesting yeah. and we're not dead. When we're in a dreamless sleep. So you could look at this situation and say merely depowering the computer network or whatever would put it into essentially a sleep like state where its rationality is latent and not manifesting. But if you flip it back on again, it's awake again. So I think you might need to physically destroy the machine to where it could not function. That would be to killing. get to the point of it being killing. OK, um, the previous question, would God give it its soul at the moment it becomes self-aware? Um, well, this is a harder thing and it's more speculative. If it has a soul, it's going to be because God gives it one. But um, at what point God would do that? is unclear. Uh, I would say that the, our best bet for answering that question is looking at an analog of the situation in terms that's comparable to humanity. And in humanity, we gain our souls at the moment of conception, which is when you have a complete human being, even though it's not yet capable oh, yeah. of manifesting its rationality. Right. And so I would say God would be most likely to give it its soul if it had a soul, would mm -hmm. be most likely to give it its soul at the moment the machine is completely built and programmed to where it would have the ability to uh, to be rational once you boot it up and let it start running its programs. Right. But then we need to address the first question. Would it have a soul at all? The soul is understood as the life principle of the body and machines are not alive. So um, I would say an artificial intelligence would not have a soul. Um, it's just a machine that's running certain algorithms that can mimic the uh, the functioning of human intelligence. But it's not really alive. It's not really conscious. It's just running algorithms. Uh, Conrad, thanks for that question. Can I do a, a follow up of my own yeah. on that? Do, do you do you have any sense that even this being the case that the machine it's a machine it's it can't have a soul because mm -hmm. it's not alive? Uh, do you have any sense that AI could? nonetheless be dangerous oh absolutely like how could it be because we get a lot of warnings about well, ai yeah and yeah. with good reason i mean we're working on on uh, autonomous killing systems right now yeah and right. and that sounds dangerous it is just yeah. the name sounds I mean, dangerous the idea is you build a military drone or robot that yeah. can make firing decisions on its own 
you know, what am I going to target? Yeah. Absolutely. AIs can be dangerous and we need and, and very smart people are taking this very seriously. Right. Right. Because there, there's there is a certain element of programming that uh, you don't know. You, you can't foresee everything. Right. You can't. Pro, pro, so, yeah, you, you could. Uh, you, I mean, you could build a nice civilization. You could colonize Mars and one day a bunch of rogue synths decide to destroy everything. That is so depressing. Put all that work into putting a civilization on Mars. And then what would they call road? What rogue synths? Rose synths. Yes, yeah. right. And that, that's like, um, uh, don't tell me. Blade Runner. Yeah, it's, it's Star Trek Picard. Oh, oh, sorry. I thought that was Blade Runner. Uh, so there are rogue synths in Blade Runner. Yeah. But they don't right. destroy everything on Mars. Uh, up next is Peter. Okay. Uh, I seem to recall that Colossal Boy was Jewish. I have mm-hmm. that is. I hope you know what that means. I do because I have not a clue. I seem to recall that Colossal Boy was Jewish. Oh, were any of the Legion of Superheroes Catholic? Okay, yeah. I, know, I know. I'm okay. I'm situated now. So the Legion of Superheroes is my all time favorite superhero group. Yeah. Uh, so I was a, became a fan as a little boy. They are young superheroes in the 31st century. Mm-hmm. So you have science fiction and superheroes. Nice. Yeah. Um, Colossal Boy is one of their members. He has the ability to grow to colossal size, and he is, in fact, Jewish. But I'll tell you the answer to the question on the other side of the break. Okay. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Mark P., Aaron W., Lisa C., Kyle P., and Trevor T. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And now is a great time to become a StarQuest patron. Thanks to a generous gift from a StarQuest supporter, when you start a new Patreon monthly pledge at sqpn.com slash give, the first three months will be matched by an equal amount from our donor. So if you become a new patron at $10 a month, after three months, our donor will give $30 to StarQuest to support all our shows, including Mysterious World, making your gift go even further. If you've been thinking of becoming a StarQuest patron, now is the time. Visit sqpn.com slash give today. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. And by Colchester Curry House, helping people make authentic Indian cuisine from the comfort of their own home. Find authentic Indian spice blends and recipes at colchestercurryhouse.com. And uh, here's the weird question that uh, Jimmy was about to answer before we went on the break. I seem to recall that this is from Peter. I seem to recall that Colossal Boy was Jewish. Were any members of the Legion of Superheroes Catholic? So um, there have been a lot of members of the Legion of Superheroes over the years. And we do know about some of their religions, like Dawnstar, who was a native of a planet that was settled by Native Americans. Um, She has a Native American religion. Others have uh, like uh, religions from other planets, like the inhabitants of Talok 8 worship their ancestors and so forth. So Shadow Lass is an ancestor worshiper. Um, in terms of uh, are any Catholic? Well, uh, there are 
two candidates I've seen called out, really three. One is Saturn Girl, but I, I haven't seen any good evidence that Saturn Girl is Catholic. Okay. Another is a character sometimes called Reflex. His name is Devlin Orion, and he um, is sometimes assumed to be Catholic, I assume, because his last name is Sounds Orion. Irish. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I haven't seen particular evidence that he is Catholic. The one I think that you have the best case for is Invisible Kid Number Two. Invisible Kid Number Two is a guy named Jacques Foucault, and uh, he came from the Ivory Coast. And even though today Ivory Coast is mostly Muslim, there is a significant Christian minority there, and he seems to be clearly culturally Catholic. Oh. He is a French speaker. And even in his own internal thought balloons, he in he refers to Catholic religious concepts like he'll invoke the sacred heart. OK, you know, his sacre yeah. cœur. Uh-huh. And um, now you could say, well, that's just cultural. He's not necessarily, you know, religious per se. But he also in his very first appearance, he appeals to his mom who's dead. And he's thinking, Mom, here's what's going on with me and my sister. If your spirit can hear me, I want you to know this. So that would suggest he's not merely from a Catholic culture. He's also open to the real possibility. And so given the evidence, even though we don't have an explicit statement, it looks to me like Invisible Kid number two is likely to be Catholic. If people are interested in discussions of the religions of different superheroes, they're adherence.org has a page. If you Google religions of superheroes, um, oh. it'll come up now. And they cover Marvel heroes, DC heroes and other heroes as well. And in some cases, there is very clear evidence in the comics for the religious faith. Like in the X-Men, Kitty Pride is Jewish and Nightcrawler is Catholic. Um, but um, they have a lot of stuff on there that I'm not con I, I haven't seen good evidence in the comics. Some oh, of it looks speculative to me. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much, Peter, for that question. Uh, during the break, I read ahead to Lauren's question. And uh -huh. I'm, I'm starting to feel like we should give out a prize for uh, best question on weird, uh, on weird. You know what I'm saying? When we have Jimmy in for weird questions. And I think I should be the sole judge of best question. You would, have, you would have to be because in my view, all, there are no bad questions. All questions are good. And yeah. I therefore couldn't but, assign a best. But this question just makes me really happy. OK. Um, Lauren asks this. Is baby Yoda required to fast or to abstain from meat on Fridays or Good Friday, according to the discipline of his diocese or right, if he's 50 years old? So that is uh, the assumption. Uh, and I have not watched The Mandalorian, but my understanding is baby Yoda or the child is yeah. supposed to be 50 years old. Right. And for people who haven't seen it, it's not actually Yoda, but it is a member of his species. So they right. call him baby Yoda. Um, the, the fans do. So assuming he's Catholic, would he need to fast and abstain on the days where those are required? Well, if you look at the law of uh, fast and abstinence in the code of canon law, assuming he's a member of the Latin rite, um, you have to start abstaining, uh, once you are, uh, once you've completed 14 years. So you're as soon as you turn 14, you got to start abstaining. OK. And uh, and that never sunsets. So if this law applies to him, he would need to abstain if he's 50. Would he would he need to fast? Well, the law of fast has a sunset clause, unlike the law of abstinence. 
the, the law of fast ceases to bind you as soon as you turn 59. Oh, so okay. old people are not required to fast. Oh, I should also say on abstinence, there's one other condition I need to mention. He does meet the age requirement, but if there is a reason why he couldn't abstain from meat, yeah. like he's an obligate carnivore, yeah, uh, then he, I think he might be actually. Well, I know he eats frogs. Boy, does he! Yeah, <laughs> but I've also seen in um, in Empire Strikes Back, Yoda eats stew. Oh. And I assume that stew is not made entirely out of meat and water. Oh, right. In which right. case, he may not be an obligate carnivore. Right. Um, but uh, if he was, then he wouldn't have to abstain. Um, on the other hand, about fasting, well, that has a sunset clause of when you turn 59. So if this law applies to him, Baby Yoda would still need to fast because um, he's not yet 59. But then there's the question. Would this law apply to him? Because merely ecclesiastical laws only apply to certain people. And there are three conditions, unless the law provides otherwise, there are three conditions for who needs to obey merely ecclesiastical laws, like fast or abstain on this day. The three conditions are, one, you have to be baptized or received into the Catholic Church. And we've granted that because... Yeah. He um, said if it was Catholic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the third condition is be at least seven years old, and that would be satisfied in the case of Baby Yoda. But then there's a second condition, have the efficient use of reason. And if Baby Yoda is an infant, he may not yet have the sufficient use of reason, even yeah. though he's of an alien species. Right. And so that would be the one I would, I would focus attention on. If he's as smart as an ordinary seven-year-old, then he may have the efficient use of reason, but he may not, too. Yeah. He may just be guided by instincts that help him do the right thing, like, you know, I don't know, the force, yeah. but not actually have the efficient use of reason. And since he seems to be pre-verbal, yeah. that would go along with that thesis. So my guess is Baby Yoda is not, um, is, is, would not be bound. Also, um, in a scenario like this where you have creatures that age really slowly like this, I think if we encountered such creatures and they wanted to become Catholic, the church would revise its law to take account the length of their natural life cycle and what stages they're at at different points in it. But that's how the law would apply today. All right. Um, I got one other concern about that, however. Uh, the word year mm -hmm. applies to one planet. Yeah. Like even yeah, we're, I'm assuming this is all Earth years. Oh, OK. All right. Uh, Matthew. Oh, Father Matthew. Uh, next question is uh, from uh, Father Matthew. Mm -hmm. uh, he says, if someone were to, if someone were to travel close to the speed of light from Saturday evening to Monday morning, as experienced on Earth, such that Monday felt like Sunday because of the time dilation, I mm -hmm. suppose, would they be obliged to fulfill their Sunday obligation in what was Monday for us, but felt like Sunday for them? Okay, so this involves a really interesting concept from general relativity, not just the time dilation stuff, okay, but um, the concept of a frame of reference, because in, in saying what time is it now, you have to establish what your frame of reference is. Okay. And traveling very fast or getting close to very heavy objects causes time dilation, which creates a different local frame of reference than what's on Earth. 
Yes. Right. Okay. okay. Gotcha. With you. And um, and so you have to pick your frame of reference for the purpose of determining liturgical time. Now the way that um, that uh, canon law handles time is based on local time. Unless the law provides otherwise, the day begins at local midnight. Mm -hmm. So if you're in Rome and it's midnight and you've just crossed into Easter Sunday, it's Easter Sunday for you, even though here in San Diego, eight more hours. Yeah, it's not Easter Sunday yet. So where you are in space will depend on the liturgical, will cause the liturgical day to be different depending on where you are and what the local frame of reference is. So you get in a spaceship, you somehow ramp up really quickly to the to near the speed of light so that for you, let's say you launch on Friday Mm -hmm. and 48 hours go by for you. So it's now Sunday for you. It may be Sunday for you, but since you're traveling so close to the speed of light, it could be some completely other day back on Earth. Right. This is analogous to it being Sunday in Rome, Easter Sunday in Rome, when it's still only Holy Saturday in San Diego. Okay. And in the same way, if uh, if it's if it's a Sunday for you. In your frame of reference, your inertial frame of reference on the spaceship, it could be some completely other day on Earth. And I would say the way the law is currently written, you would need to observe local time in your space-borne inertial frame of reference. If your Sunday is, if your chronology says it's Sunday, that's when Sunday is for you. Now, if you then magically stop... You're, as to where you're not moving that fast anymore, you're going to want to recalibrate the local time with what it is on Earth. Okay. But um, but if you're traveling and your internal chronometer says that it's Sunday, then it's Sunday for you as long as you're in that inertial frame of reference. All right. Uh, Jimmy Aiken, our guest. Weird questions with Jimmy Aiken, our topic this hour. We're taking... Oh, he also had another question about what if the day is too short? Oh, because for, you're going so fast. Yeah. yeah. And and uh, actually, that won't happen as long as you're even if even if um, your single Sunday stretches years from an Earth perspective. So you couldn't celebrate mass quickly enough on the spaceship uh, to match an Earth Day, which are now blinking by incredibly rapidly. Uh, it wouldn't matter because your Sunday is that period According to your local chronometer on the ship, it's not uh, not oh. what's on Earth. Oh, so you're going to have time. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Up next, uh, Julia has a moral question for you, Jimmy. OK. Is the prime directive ethically defensible? OK. So this is actually a question that a very young Mr. Spock just asked. Uh, recently on the Short Treks episode Q&A, oh. where he's trapped in uh, in a turbo lift with the Enterprise's then first officer, number one. And he says to her, has it ever occurred to you that the prime directive is unethical, illogical and possibly morally indefensible? Ah. And she says, I don't spend my time thinking about such things. And for the sake of your sanity, I suggest you don't either. Oh, OK. <laughs> but but it is a good question. Yeah. So the prime directive for people who may not be aware is a kind of non-interference policy that they have on Starfleet. And it's been phrased different ways depending on what episode you're watching and what series you're watching. Yeah. Originally, it was like it was pretty general, like. Don't talk about space travel with people who don't have warp drive yet. Yeah. 
But now it's much more it's been it's also been presented as much more expansive, like do not interfere with the natural development of a culture and yeah. things like that. And they're actually quite inconsistent about what it requires and, and how um, how it gets implemented. And they break it all the time. I was going to say it mostly exists as a plot device so they can break it. Yeah. Or either break it or create drama yeah. one way or another. Right. Um, and. I think that if you take the expansive versions of it, like just do not interfere at all, it's it's not ethically defensible um, that there are situations where more morality would require you to intervene, like in Star Trek Insurrection. Um, you they were it's a movie where. The Enterprise has encountered a planet of a few hundred people and, you know, extinction level stuff is on the line. And I'm sorry, if extinction level stuff is on the line, you can interfere. Yeah. You know, um, the idea and there are other episodes, too, where it's like, oh, these people are about to die, but we can't help them because prime directive. And it's like, no, if these people are about to die, yeah, you can help. You them. can help them. Yeah. And um, in fact, it's probably immoral not to help. Them. Exactly. Yeah. If that's why I mentioned morality would require you to intervene. Yes. Yeah. So um, so I think if applied in an absolute way, it is not defensible. Uh, morally. But I think there is a valid principle here that we shouldn't interfere with the development of other people in certain ways. And the question is, in what ways? Yeah. Well, let's take another Star Trek example. The Borg. OK, yeah, they want to come in and use their culture to totally dominate yours and and take away free will and, uh, you know, make all of your decisions for you so they can do something better. Yeah, well, you could resist, but resistance is that's what they say is futile. So um, so the, even if the Borg were right, yeah. that what they're that they're they will make the decisions better than you, their violation of your free will and sure. your self-determination is immoral. So there should be some kind of limitation on what you can do with other cultures. It's somewhere in the middle of these two positions. Um, and in fact, we have analogs to the prime directive right now here on Earth. Um, now, the, we don't have them put together in a single unified policy, but we have a web of different laws and policies that accomplish much of the same thing. Um, for example, one of the types of restrictions we have are travel restrictions. Um, there are various uncontacted people here in the world, and local governments will have policies against contacting them. Uh, the most famous example of these are the people of North Sentinel Island uh, in the Andaman Islands off the coast of India. They are violently xenophobic and kill people who try to go there. So they have remained largely uncontacted, apparently for thousands of years based on their language. And uh, th since 1956, the Indian government has had a policy of you cannot go within three miles of North Sentinel Island. So we have a kind of cultural preserve here to protect both people from go protect the people there from outside contact and to protect people who would otherwise go there and get themselves killed. Yeah. So travel restrictions are one kind of thing that is analogous to what happens in the private directive. We also have other things. Now, one of the some of the things that come up on Star Trek are, can you give these people a given technology or can you get like 
flintlocks that comes up in one episode. Can you give these people flintlocks? Does the prime directive allow that? Because they don't have flintlocks now. So this is a new technology for them or information like can you tell them about alien planets and warp drive and things like that? Well, we also have trade restrictions. Um, you cannot give certain technologies to certain countries here on Earth. Yeah. You also can't give certain information to certain uh, countries here on Earth. In fact, if you look in um, you, in fact, with classified stuff, you can't even give it to our own citizens. But in particular, you can't give it to certain countries, even if they have security clearance. Otherwise, uh, one of the classification modifiers in U.S. security nomenclature is no foreign. No foreign means no foreign citizens are to be given access to this document. So you'll mm-hmm. be reading along in a classified document. It'll say top secret, no foreign mm-hmm. or secret, no foreign or confidential, no foreign or something like that. So even our buddies like over in the U.K., Even if they got a security clearance, you can't share this with them. Similarly, we don't share our nuclear secrets with anybody. Mm -hmm. And we certainly don't give working nuclear technology to anybody. Um, And uh, so we have analogs to things like the Prime Directive now where you don't, you know, you don't give a developing nation nuclear weapons. um, But you might have some nuclear sharing with people who are developed, like people in the UK, let's say. But so we do already have something that based on who you are, what our relationship is and how advanced you already are, we will share certain things with you we would not share with other people. So I think the prime directive contains a valid insight that you it would be disruptive to share certain things with certain people. And we already start to regulate that here on Earth. And I think if we started contacting alien civilizations of vastly different levels, we'd need to come up with an analog policy, not the ridiculously restrictive one they have in Starfleet, but something along these lines. The trick then would be enforcing it. Because it's hard enough to enforce these restrictions now. Yeah, right. Just just a couple of years ago, a guy who decided he wanted to evangelize the North Sentinelese. So he went there and they promptly killed him. Yeah, right. And more will go in all likelihood at some point. Um, Yep. Okay. Uh, I want to get to one more if we can. Maybe we'll get two more. I don't know. Uh, Tom Mm -hmm. asks. uh, Oh, I didn't say thank you, Julia. Julia, thank you for your question. Tom, uh, when you fast regularly for health reasons, how do you deal with the religious obligation of fasting? If you were going to fast anyway and you were fasting from your own desire, how do you sincerely redirect that intention to God? Well, um, if I'm so I fast on a daily basis except Sundays. And so on days that are also Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, when I'm required to fast, I simply uh, add a second intention and I say I'm I'm fasting now, not just for, you know, health and weight management reasons. I'm also fasting because the church law says I should. And I honor that. And I want to please God by doing this. So I simply establish a new intention on those days. Um, And it's like St. Paul says, with anything you do, and it could be your day job, do it unto the Lord, i.e. with the intention of pleasing God. And as long as you have the intention of pleasing God by what you're doing, it acquires spiritual significance. And you can even have that intention on days where fasting is not required. Another thing that you can do and that I tend to do on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday is increase the rigor of my fast, even though um, 
uh, even though I could eat more than I do, I may restrict it to where it's more challenging for me on right. those days. But that's a voluntary thing. I'm not required to do that, but I choose to do that. Only until you're 59, though. In, well, and then it'll be purely voluntary, whatever yeah. I do. Uh, I'm going to try to get some short ones to you. Timothy okay. uh, asks this. What would be the effects of organ transplants at the resurrection of the dead? Um, this is an unknown one. Uh, what the, the, it could be that your organ that you had donated to you is going to go back to the person who, who originally had it. It could be you get to keep it or it could be that neither one of you has it. Uh, the church has not said that your resurrection body must include specific chunks of matter. And so any specific chunk of matter, like a transplanted heart, could end up anywhere. That's up to God. Uh, thank you, Timothy. Uh, let's try Paul. Uh, what would your opinion be on how a faithful Catholic should deal with vampires? Is it morally acceptable to destroy them? And he's talking about the Bram Stoker type of vampire. Right. So if we're talking the Bram Stoker type of vampire, absolutely, it's moral to destroy them. In fact, in um, in Bram Stoker's novel, Dracula, Van Helsing has a dispensation from Rome uh, to, yeah. oh, that's uh, right. to yeah. do certain procedures in combating vampires. But, uh, yeah, absolutely. They're predators, they're aggressors, and you can use whatever means are needed to protect the community against them. But they're not human. Is that what you're saying? They're no, not... no, they can, they can be human. They could even be alive. Oh, but they're, I see. They're preying on other people oh, and yeah. killing them or infecting them. They are aggressors. So you could use the death penalty on them. But if the death penalty is unavailable to you because the court systems don't take vampirism seriously in this universe. I am so tired of the court system not taking vampirism yeah, seriously. Then you can use whatever means are necessary based on the necessity defense to protect the community against Dracula, such as... Taking a Bowie knife and driving it into him, which is what uh, what uh, what's his name? I, uh, the, the guy oh, from Texas. All of a sudden, I'm blanking on his name, but that's what happens at the end of the novel Dracula. Quincy uh, Morris. Uh, good old Quincy. Uh, all right. Uh, John asks, how much incense is too much? Um Incense is meant to help foster our closeness to God spiritually. The answer will depend on who you are, what kind of space you're in, and do people there have who are up close have chemical sensitivities or allergies. But the answer is it becomes too much when it is causing a positive distance from God rather than encouraging closeness to God. All right. Are, are you in, do you enjoy incense or don't like it? I do. I, I like it, too. Yeah. I, I found it hard to be around when I was a kid, though. I don't know why. It's mm-hmm. one of those things you grow into, maybe. I couldn't walk down the soap aisle as a kid. I would start the, sneezing. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, just the smell of soap or the... That, the you know, it's the soap aisle, anyway. Yeah. yeah. Jimmy, those are some great questions and answers. Folks, you can send us your feedback by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? We'll be talking about when the four Gospels were written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're going to be pinning it down to years as specifically as we can. Excellent. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. Once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>